This is a very charged topic, the topic of happiness. Happiness, very slippery, very elusive, high in demand. This is a product that many of us are spending a life pursuing. Some of us have caught it, some of us have it uh, less or more than others. Let's, let's look for, sorry, let's look for some clarity on this subject. In this presentation, which will go till 2.45 with a short break in the middle, I'm going to look at four areas that deal with happiness. Number one, can it really be defined? The question really is based on the fact that if it's a, an instruction in the Torah, it has to be defined. Because God cannot tell us, be happy, pursue happiness, choose happiness, if it's something that's not attainable. It has to have a very clear working definition in order for God to be able to say at the end of 120 years, okay, were you happy? Did you, did you serve me in happiness? Were you happy with what you had in your life? And I said, well, no one told me what happiness is. I, I never got it clear. Uh, and if it's so slippery and elusive and it really has no definition because it's an emotion and we don't control it and we're not in... We can't just make it happen because, you know, when my spouse is uh, nicer to me, my, my boss really appreciates me, then I'll be happy. When my father and mother start being nice to me and I have a functional family, then I'll be happy. And when I have enough money in my bank account, then I'll be happy. And I know most of you can't relate to any of this, but there are friends of yours who, who understand what I'm talking about. You see, the first thing we're going to look at is, is happiness, is, is it definable? And if it is, then let's get our our hands on it and find out why is it that the grip is so slippery. Second we want to look at is does the Torah in its definition for happiness command us to be happy, instruct us to be happy, or is it just an option? You know, if, if, you, if you can it would be wonderful, but if you can't it's not, we're not accountable for it. We're not answerable for it. Inside this question is who's responsible for our happiness. Our spouse, our children, our boss, our bank account, getting that new car, paying off the mortgage. Who's responsible for our happiness? Number three, welfare. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> Boy, are you in trouble. Okay, no. Number three, how, uh, how do we sabotage our happiness? Now, you'll notice that inside the question is an assumption we sabotage our happiness. Why would we want to sabotage that? If, if happiness is something you and I are really seriously in search of, why would we want to sabotage our own happiness? It makes no sense. Unless there's something very special about being able to sabotage our own happiness and hang our happiness outside of ourselves so that I'm not responsible for my happiness, maybe it's your responsibility to make me happy. Then I don't have to worry about my accountability for my own happiness. It sounds a bit absurd to do that because then why, why wouldn't I want my own happiness? But we're going to have to look at that seriously. And fourthly, and this is probably the most important part of the whole presentation, is if, if happiness really is a choice that you and I can make on a more consistent basis and is not totally related to the events and people in our lives, if happiness really is a choice, which some are going to get to, where in the Torah is there a system 
Where in the Torah is there a system that's there for you and I that when we plug into this system, happiness is available on a more consistent basis? Where in the Torah do we see a system for training ourselves to become more happy so that we can leave this world on our deathbed? Let's get real. Everyone I know of the past went the same way. And as far as I know, that's the way it's going to continue to be. Every one of us wants to be able to say on our dying moments, you know something, I'm looking back. I had a very fulfilling life. I had a life that, you know, with all the adversity that I did go through, no denial on that, there was a lot of pain, but you know, I had a very good life, there was a lot of meaning. I had a happy, a happy life. Everyone wants to be able to say that. Now, when should we start thinking about that question? In the last five minutes, or if that's really one of our goals, to be able to say, you know, I genuinely can say that my life was filled with a lot of meaning. There were a lot of difficulties, a lot of challenges I went through, a lot of pain, Overall, I would say, my life was filled with, with an amazing amount of happiness. If that is something we genuinely would love to say with true sincerity, and, and it be true of ourselves, not just, I'm denying the fact that uh, I had hell my whole life, but if it's really true, and we want to be able to say that of ourselves, when should we start thinking about it? Five minutes before we analyze and take inventory? Or is it a life career of choosing happiness? Pursuit of happiness is, is rather... I'm, I'm scared to use that particular term because it sounds like it's, we're constantly chasing it and it's running away. I, I shouldn't say that that's untrue, but I want, in this presentation, to give um, an angle on happiness which, from the Torah sources I'll be quoting, hopefully shows us that happiness is already inside. It's not somewhere I have to run after. Those are the four points we're going to look at. What I would like to start off on is the following. Let's get clear what happiness is not. You see, if happiness is my spouse being good and appreciative and supportive to me, who controls my happiness? If my happiness is about when my kids go in the right direction and they are respectful and listen to the parents and, and their rebbies and the teachers and go in the Torah way, then I'll be happy. Who's in control of my happiness? When I lose weight, then I'm going to be so happy. Now, there's no one in this room who can relate this, but some of you know, friends, who, when I control myself consistently, then I'm going to be happy. Who controls my happiness? When I get appreciation from my boss and a raise in salary, I'm going to feel so happy. Who's controlling my happiness? When I've got more money in my bank account, I can pay off the mortgage and the car loan. Wait a minute, hold it, oh, wait a second. Where is happiness? And who do we want to have in control? Now, the big problem with this is the following. If it really is my spouse and my children and the bank account and the mother-in-law and the father-in-law, I have to put into it as well. When they start showing appreciation for me, then I will be happy. If it really is outside of me, if happiness is really outside of me, who's responsible for making me happy? Whose responsibility is it? And if it's outside of me, how much responsibility am I willing to take? How many actions or how many changes within myself am I willing to take to create the happiness if it's not within my control or responsibility? Because it's your ability to give me and make 
me happy. This is the problem. This is the problem. We have an expression in the Gemara. It's actually brought in Kohelis Rabbah as well, in the Medrash. I think it's in chapter 1, paragraph 24. Adam, the way God programmed the human mind, Adam, Yeshlei Mana, person has a hundred. Roitzem Atayim, he wants two hundred. Let's figure this out a moment. A person has a hundred, he wants two hundred. Is he rich, is he poor? Is he happy or unhappy? Is unhappy. Okay. Have you heard the expression, I've got a hundred thousand, and it's in the house, in the car, and it's, uh, it's in, in the tuition and everything else, but if I had another hundred thousand, and I could pay off all those debts, and go on that vacation, then I would be happy. Can you, can you hear that as a real statement? As a reflection of, 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 of many people that might say that? Yes? Is that, is that a fair statement? Okay. So let's ask ourselves a question. If I'm not learning to enjoy the first 100, where's the logical sequence that if I had another 100, then I would be happy? Adam yesh a person has 100, writes in my time, he wants 200. Guess what happens when he's got 200? Have any of you ever... Do you remember first getting your first credit card? No one's got a credit card here? When you first got your first credit card, do you remember what started happening to you in the mail? You got onto a new mailing list. <laughs> now, once you reach a certain credit line, let's say 10,000, and you start and you continually pay off your monthly bills, do you know what happens? You get pushed up onto another mailing list. In fact, if ever you come into money and pay off your mortgage, guess what happens then? You go onto another mailing list. And what you thought till now was your buying power, you don't know anything yet. <laughs> Because when you start getting these magazines in the mail and seeing what's still available to you that you haven't yet experienced or bought and that you can get, then you can get on credit. Right? Adam Yeshleimana wrote to Matayim. The problem is that as long as I believe that my happiness is outside there and when I have more of it, then I will be happy. How much responsibility am I willing to take to look for the good that already exists in me, in my children, in my spouse, in my marriage, to look for the good in my religious conviction, in the Torah observance that I'm already experiencing and practicing. Oh, if only I knew more, then I would be so much happier. Then I would, be, uh, I would know how to learn inside myself. If only I knew all the prayers, then I would... But wait a minute, what about the words that are coming out my mouth in the meantime and in the experience of intimacy and conversation with God now? You mean I can only be happy if I'm a, an extremely accomplished scholar or talking to God all day long or never getting angry? See, as long as I keep pinning happiness outside of myself, it will be slippery, elusive, and I will be pursuing it because it's out there. Perky Avos has a very interesting statement. In the fourth chapter, the first Mishnah, Ezehu Ashir, who is the wealthy person, and the famous answer, Hasameach Chelko, the one who is happy with what he has. I'm glad you said that because sometimes it's translated to the one who's satisfied. That's not what the words are. The word is Hasameach Bechelko. He's enjoying what's in his life. Now there's a Medjish Tanchuma which takes this Mishnah and 
opens it up a little bit more. Medrash says, the Ezechelkai, what is his chalik? What is his portion? You just told me that someone who's happy, the one who's wealthy is the one who's happy with what he has. Tell that to Howard Hughes. Remember Howard Hughes? Poor guy. He died with $2.1 billion to his name. And in his last entry in his journal, he wrote, I do not remember ever waking up and saying, I'm happy today. What happened? What happened? Ezu, Asher, who is the wealthy person? I know I'm, I'm giving you an extreme case, but is it possible that there are a lot of extreme cases out there? Hasameach Bechelkai, the one who's enjoying what he already has, is a reflection that if I'm enjoying my 100, I'm a candidate for another 100. If I'm not enjoying my first 100, why should God sign a check for another? Because I'm not going to enjoy that. Because there's going to be other items. I, if I had that, then I'd really be happy. A second home? To get away on the weekends? That would be great. And guess what happens when you get bored with a second home? And here the Medjish tells us a story, which I will embellish. Medjish goes, the, the story that I'm embellishing goes like this. You have a king, and he had a winter palace. And guess what happened? After a few years, he got bored with the winter palace. Poor guy. So, he started building a new one, and he put the old one up for sale. But it wasn't a regular sale, it only was in an auction, and only billionaires could go to the auction. There was one billionaire whose mind was totally set on buying this palace. Because imagine the social prestige, right? inviting your friends to the, I own the old winter palace of the king. It wasn't so old, it was, just, it was, uh, it was out of date for the, for the king. So imagine the, the social status, the prestige that he would have throwing parties in the winter palace of the king. So he went to the auction and he was outbid. He went home devastated. He couldn't believe it. Nights he'd already been up, couldn't sleep, planning all the parties. Who he's going to invite? He was so sure. And he was outbid. Broken. On the way home, he sees an old friend of his who's only worth $500 million closing up store on Madison Avenue. And our billionaire said, you know, what am I complaining about? This guy wasn't even allowed into the auction. He had to watch it on TV. <laughs> What am I complaining about? I haven't lost a penny of my money. And he walks home kind of happy with what he has. Now, our $500 million friend, how, much, how do you think he feels having to watch on TV, poor man, saying, where am I going to make the big bucks, the mega bucks? So what happens to him? He says to himself, no, it's pretty, I wasn't even allowed in. And he's walking home kind of disappointed. And then he meets someone, an employee of his, who only is only... Uh, a million dollar salary and says to himself what's the matter with me I've got 500 million dollars to my name this gentleman over here if he didn't spend a penny for the next 500 years then he'd have what I've got why am I I haven't lost a penny and he walks I'm kind of happy with what he has and our friend who's only earning a million dollars a year is wondering when he's going to make the big bucks of course the story goes on until he meets someone who has no home and says you know what this guy's going to that cardboard box what am I complaining about I've got a million dollar salary the guy with the cardboard box, how do you think he feels to see someone with no shoes? He says, wait a minute, I've got shoes! I've got dignity! I walk, I walk the streets with no boots. This man has no shoes! And he feels kind of satisfied with his cardboard house. And our friend with no shoes really feels low until he sees someone with no feet. Sees someone with no feet. And he goes up to the guy with no feet. And he looks at him. This man with no feet is smiling from one end of the face to the other. So our friend with no shoes says, excuse me, I'm usually more polite than this, but why are you smiling? You have no feet. <laughs> and the guy with no feet says, I'll tell you how it happened. 
this story's not as long as this, the other one. <laughs> I was traveling with my business partner, and we were ambushed by terrorists. And they said, we're going to kill one of you, we're going to cut the feet off the other. Thank God I have no feet. My friend is buried beneath the ground. Ends off the medrash, two words. Die, no, not in English, Hebrew. Die, shechai. Dayenu on Passover night. Die, it's enough. Shechai, that we're alive. The medrash is saying that if wealth, ashir, ezu, ashir, asamech, the one who's happy with what he has, what has he got, he's alive, that is called wealth. Says the medrash Tanhuma. Madam, your name, sorry? My name? Yes. Selma. Selma. Selma, uh, if I offer you $5 million for one of your eyes, would you agree? No. no. You didn't hesitate. I'll make a package deal, $20 million for both. No way. No way. Interesting. Your eyes are worth a lot of money. Would $20 million make a difference in your life starting tomorrow? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Without eyes. Okay. Madam, your name? Shoshana. I'll offer you... Um, half a million dollars for your teeth. Consider it. Now, if you like toffee, apple, and steak, you might hesitate. How about a million dollars for one of your hands? Is there anyone who would be willing to give away a leg for five million dollars? How about both legs for twenty million? Did any of you watch Bionic Man? Remember six million dollar man? Peanut! Six million dollars? Is that all his work? Think about it. Our bodies, we're not willing to part for millions. And what's going on over here? Says the Medrash, what is the word in Hebrew for eyes? Enayim. What's the first letter of Enayim? What's the word in Hebrew for teeth? What's the first letter? What's the word in Hebrew for hands? Yadayim. What's the word in Hebrew for legs? What is the first letters? Spell Ayin, Shin, Yud, Resh, Ashir. Ashir means wealthy. Started off the Mishnah, Ezehu Ashir, who is the wealthy person? Hasamech Bechelkai, he's happy with what he has, he's enjoying what he's got. Ask the Medrash, the Ezechelkai, what is his portion? Einayim, he's got eyes, Shinayim, teeth, Yadayim, hands, Ravlaim. Now, there are people who don't have all that, but the Medrash is pointing out the following. Our happiness depends who we're looking on the scale. If I'm looking up the scale to see who's got more than me, what's that do to my measure of happiness? If I am looking at what I've already got and what others haven't got, it puts me into focus with what is already good in my life. Hasameach Bechelkai means I'm training to enjoy what's already there. I'm going to bring this point out a little bit stronger, and then we can move on. You have a best friend, let's call her Sarah, and you come out on the 24th story of your building, and you see Sarah on the balcony. She's standing, not in the balcony, on the railing. Sarah, what are you doing? I'm committing suicide. Sarah, what's the matter with you? It's no use. I can't take it anymore. My husband this, my children that, my boss this. I can't take it. My health. Sarah, let's talk. Sarah's your best friend. What are you going to say to her? I don't want 
never spoke about it. So give me, give me two minutes at least. Okay, you got two minutes. <laughs> if you haven't convinced me after two minutes, I'm jumping. Ladies, you got two minutes. What are you going to tell her? You have a husband. You have children. No. You have a job. You have My husband? <laughs> Don't make me feel. <laughs> <laughs> you have two arms, two eyes. <laughs> what are they used? But no one appreciates me. I'm overweight. I can never lose weight. You're gonna say I love you if you jump here. Oh, so I, I, I gotta just, just for you, right? I live for you. <laughs> I'd say wait till tomorrow. Wait till tomorrow? Do you know how many years I've been contemplating this? It took me so much courage just to get here. Now you were right. No. You've got one minute left. <laughs> Well, then I grab. <laughs> you want me to wait for tomorrow to give you time to think what to say? I've spent the last 35 years thinking this over. It's clear to me. Down there, no more pain. Ladies, it's too late. It's not your life? Okay, then it doesn't matter, right? If it's not my life, then... How do you know it's going to be better down there? I don't, but I can't imagine it worse than this. <laughs> you think it's funny? You think that's funny? I don't think... I think those are real answers. How about the following? Let's start, let's start the talk again. We've got two minutes. Sarah. Sarah, it must be terrible with your husband and children and everything. I'm... After hearing all what you're going through, I think I feel like joining you. But listen, one second, one second. Sarah, before you go, before you go... Um, just trying to empathize in 20 seconds. So before you go, let's pretend that in addition to your abusive husband, your children who have no respect for you, your abusive boss, your bank manager who's on your back for all the money you owe the bank. You're making it worse for me. What are you reminding me of all these sorrows I have? Hold it, hold it, hold it. Let's just add on that you were also born blind. What? Born blind? You, I'm I'm not giving you two minutes, I'm going now. One second, you said two minutes, I've got 30 seconds left. You're born blind, Sarah. You were born blind. And you can't take it anymore. And right now you've had it. You've decided to jump off. And a second before you breathe in, your last breath, jump off. You can see. You, you can see for the first time. Full color, three dimension. Oh, what a beautiful world. Sarah, are you going to jump off now? Or are you going to stick around a few hours to start finding out this beautiful world that you've been living in for the last 35 years? Sarah, you weren't born blind. You've had eyes for 35 years, but you didn't add it in your inventory. There's other parts of your life which haven't been appreciated either. Happiness is a choice of what you and I focus. Happiness is a choice to enjoy what's already good in my life. And as I build on that, I can begin to enjoy whatever else will come in my life. Happiness starts with enjoying that I'm physically alive and healthy. We haven't even got to Jewish, Olam Haba, religious, done one mitzvah, believe in God, that's just the beginning. If a person didn't do anything else, going to Rambam, he's already got Alam Haba, 
uh, admitted he's not going to get a front seat. Some people prefer to smoke. Listen, I have a smoking section. <laughs> but just believing in God and starting a religious career, very powerful. We're talking about eternity now. Ezehu Asher, who's the wealthy person in true sense of wealth? What are my true assets? My bank account? Is the image of who I am, the car I drive, the house I live in, the yacht that I sail in? This is not our image. That's the image of the media. That's the image that the world wants to impress upon you and I, so that us as buyers and consumers will go out and buy their product. That's not happiness. Happiness is not... (laughs) I'm sorry it's not on tape. Happiness is not which cigarette you're smoking. Newport, alive with pleasure. Do you realize what that means? If you're not smoking Newport, you're dead with pain. (laughs) Right? Marlborough. If he's not smoking Marlborough, then he's not cool, and no one's going to be attracted to him. How did he die? Lung cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You heard of Mida Kanega Mida? Interesting. Rabbi Shimon Schwab. I mentioned yesterday Rabbi Shimon Schwab. I'm going to take a question a little bit longer. Rabbi Shimon Schwab was crippled the last 10 years of his life. I mentioned this to whoever was here yesterday. And um, he was known from his wife and his children, grandchildren, for never being heard complaining about being crippled. Immobile. Unable to move around except in a wheelchair. Very rarely able to get out of the house. And when asked, how is it that you have no legs? And you're not complaining, you're always so serene and happy. He said, well, I look at it like this. If someone gave you a million dollars on loan, and 70 years later asked for $50 back, $100 back, $1,000 back, would you get all angry and resentful and bitter? Wait a minute, I, you let me, I had a million dollars all this time, and you're asking for a small amount back. My true assets are not my body. My truest assets is, I'm a Jew, a religious Jew, I'm alive, healthy, my wife, alive, healthy, marriage, children, over 30 grandchildren, I've been the community rabbi of Washington Heights over 50 years. When I look at my true assets, and I look at my inventory, and I say I don't have legs, it hasn't even created a dent in my true bank account. My true assets, Ezehu Asher, who's the really wealthy person. Question. Did Rav Shimon Schwab make this decision the day that he lost mobility of his legs? Or was this a training at some point in his life but it became obvious that happiness is a daily choice amidst the adversities and the difficulties and the challenges at work, at home, with the kids and there's plenty to smile at too. It depends what am I keeping inventory of? What's my focus? Says King David, and I mentioned this also yesterday, Zehayim Asa Hashem, this is the day God created. God made this day. If God made this day, do you think there's a lot of good in it? What did God say at the end of each day of creation, okay, except for the second day? He saw what he had made, Behine Taif, it was good. But what did God say on the last day report? On the final report, he looked at all that he's made, right at the end of the first chapter, Behine and behold, Taif. Now, if God says good, you better be sure it's good. But if he says, <coughs> exceedingly good, how big do you think is God's exceeding? How big? 
Now, it's interesting, because the Medrash tells us that when God said Ma'id, it's exceedingly good, included in the word Ma'id was the creation of Gehenim, hell, the Yitzhahara, evil inclination, sleep, suffering. Everything that is negative was created when he said the word Taid Ma'id, but it's included that after it was all created, he said the world is still very good. It seems that God's inventory of the reality of the good in this world is exceeding to such ex- an extent that the King David do you think he was well qualified to talk about suffering? Yeah? King David? His father-in-law tried to assassinate him only a few times. His own son tried to assassinate him only a few times. His best friends turned against him. Even his wife turned against him. Even his own family didn't recognize or appreciate his true worth. Here, King David became king of Israel, the one who fought Goliath, the one who became the general of the Jewish people, conquered the land of Israel, finished off what Yehoshua didn't finish off. King David was the musician par excellence, poet, musician, singer of the Jewish people. And when you look at the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, describing what? This is his journal, his life journal, which the Gentile Christian world adopted all the way. I just went through George Washington Toll, and the lady there is reading Psalms. I say, you don't waste a second. The Gentile world takes Psalms very seriously. If you go to Sunday church, and don't go, but if you go, if ever, if ever you have a friend who went to church on a Sunday, you would find out that they're singing Psalms a lot of the time. King David's Psalms, what are they about? It's interesting, some of the headlines start off when I was running away from Avshalom, my son. When I was being pursued by Shaul HaMelech, my father-in-law. When I was in the land of the Plishtim and the Philistines and they were trying to kill me. What would you expect under those headlines? What would you expect to be the details of the rest of the psalm? Where was I in trouble? Right? Who, who, where I rent, which, which hill, which cave I hid in, or whatever. I mean, it sounds like a headline of the whole story. No details. Do you know what you're going to read there? I'm going to read there how I felt, how I responded, how I thanked you, how I expected your salvation, how I focused on the one thing I still have left, my relationship with you. And they can't take that away because that's my choice. I control that choice. So why is Psalm so powerful for us? Because it's so real of the human emotion of responding to adversity. And yet, this suffering servant of the Jewish people, the suffering servant of God, King David, despite the adversity which was real, undeniably truthfully painful in his life, which words will you find were the most common lines in the entire book of Tehillim, of Psalms? Thank you, Hashem. Because He's good. How good is God? His kindness is forever. Unlimited. His kindness is unlimited. 
our conviction that there's God in our lives is in exact proportion to how much we recognize there is God in our lives. The Kotzkarebi was once asked, where's God? And he said, well, wherever you let him in. <laughs> as much as we find meaning in our lives, as much as we find Hashem in our lives and look for the blessing, even amidst the adversity, even if we can't find it right now because it's too painful, but how many times afterwards we said, you know what, because of that relationship, I'm so much more mature, I would never let anyone do that to me again. I would never let people treat me that way again. I'm much stronger in myself. I'm no longer a 67 Chevy. I'm a Rolls Royce. <laughs> Rolls Royce don't eat the same food as a 67 Chevy. Only diesel, not unleaded. You can't kick a Rolls Royce and get away with it. Oh, no. I'm a Rolls Royce. Call Yisrael b'nei melachim him. Every Jew is a prince and princess, says the Mishnah in Shabbos, in chapter 14, Mishnah 4. Call Yisrael b'nei melachim him. All Jews are princes. But not all the time do we realize it. How do we learn to realize it? Haydu l'Hashem. Thank you, God. This is not about giving gratitude to Hashem. Yes, it is. But it's not all about giving gratitude to Hashem. Being grateful, being appreciative, is not only about you receiving my appreciation. Being appreciative means I'm recognizing this good in my life. That is a choice to focus on the good. I'm training myself to be happy. Finding the good. His kindness is hidden. Le'olam is also the word helam. It's hidden. All the kindness that you and I do see, that's only what's visible. The invisible kindness is beyond. Billions I don't think that's an exaggeration, but certainly millions of chemical reactions are taking place in our bodies every single waking and sleeping moment of our lives in order for us to be able to live. Said Emerson, one day in the life of the human body, if we could experience going inside our body for one day, one day in the life of the human body would steal all the luster from fiction. <laughs> so exciting so oh this is amazing the harmony it's amazing look at that junk food coming down <laughs> look how the toxicity in it is being expelled and what little good is is in there usually the packaging well look at look at how that is being selected and going through the bloodstream look how the bloodstream is is taking in the oxygen and getting rid of what it doesn't need amazing amazing and you and I come out the bathroom and we say the most intimate of blessings. It's known and revealed before the throne of your glory, Hashem. What are we faxing to God that's so interesting should be known before the throne of His glory? No other blessings like this. Wow, it must be very interesting information. If any of the openings and closings inside of my body, which are responsible for expelling toxicity and the waste, would be open or closed. I would not be able to live for one hour. We're talking about the digestive system and beyond. Do you think God's really interested in this information? <laughs> Please don't get any more descriptive about it. But, but what are you trying to tell me? We're saying, Hashem, you come out the bathroom, it's working, yes, yes, it's working, the whole thing, efficient, fantastic. Now, you and I, no, we don't usually come out the bathroom that way, I don't see some of you, do it in private, but <laughs> if you go to hospital and see a friend or relative who has to be taken to the bathroom, you and I will feel 
differently about next time we come out the bathroom. It's a training. It's a training to recognize what's already good in our lives. And what's going on in our lives, is it more good than bad? That's an interesting question. I want to share with you the following story. I know there are a lot of questions on this. I want to... Uh, let, let me finish this point. I'll be happy to take your... We want to share with us. There was once a young lady. She was in college. And she wrote home. She hadn't spoken, uh, communicated for several months. And the letter went something like this. Mom and Dad, please don't read any further until you're sitting in a very comfortable chair. Uh-oh. What has Sandra done this time? Dear Mom and Dad, I'm very sorry that I haven't written to you for the last few months. But there was a fire in my apartment, and there was no way for me to get out except throw myself out the window. I landed on the ground, I fractured my skull, I broke both legs. I was unconscious. Fortunately for me, there was a gas attendant. It's a special man, Mum and Dad. A gas attendant across the street, he heard the shattering glass. He called Hatsala, called the ambulance, he called the fire brigade. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be writing this letter. I was in a coma for two months. Intensive care. Mum and Dad, he came every single day. I, I couldn't respond, I was in a coma, but I heard every word. He just gave me words of hope and courage and said, you're going to see it through. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I would even be writing this. Mum and Dad, after two months, I'd lost my memory and I had nowhere to go. I didn't remember where I lived. He took me into his apartment. Unfortunately, he has a disease in, 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 in the blood, but, but uh, Mum and Dad, I, I'd contracted it. But, but I want to invite you to our wedding before the pregnancy shows up. Lots of love, Sandra. Now, if you're mom and dad, we don't know. No, no. If you, if you would know the parents reading this letter, and you didn't get heart attack before getting to the PS, the PS went like this: PS, there was no fire in my apartment. I did not throw myself out the window. I did not fracture my skull. I did not break my legs. There was no gas attendant. I was not in intensive care. I do not have AIDS, and I'm not pregnant. Mom and dad, I felt chemistry. <laughs> But I wanted to put it in perspective. <laughs> Whatever's going wrong in our lives is never as much as what could go wrong. Whatever is not working in our lives, in our homes, in our bodies, in our health, in our finances, is not as bad as what could go wrong in our lives, in our homes, in our finances. It's a question of where we are deciding our happiness is. Is it inside here, looking for the good that's already there and building? Or am I going to focus on what's not? People are going to fight on this because there's a good reason why we don't want to accept that it's my personal responsibility. There are four, maybe I'll mention one or two others, but there are four major sabotages of our personal happiness. There are four major sabotages. You know, before, sorry, before I get to the four sabotages, let me share with you where the Torah tells us that we have a mitzvah to be happy. It's actually in several places, but the two major places is in Deuteronomy 26.11. 
you shall be happy in all the good which Hashem has given you Natan is a language of Matana gifted you Hashem Lord your God now in the context of that verse it's talking about going to Jerusalem and enjoying the food which you have reaped and harvested in Yerushalayim three times a year but this is the verse that we use to say here we have a mitzvah to be happy about what we have in our lives which God has given us whether it's our health our spouse our values and even what's not good in our lives what's not good in our lives is that what's going to measure our happiness or the meaning we give what's not good in our lives see it's not the events it's not how much less or more health I have than you, or how much more or less money I have than you, or how much better marriage I have than you, or how much better my kids, or how many kids I have more than you. In the end, what really counts, not how much longer I live than you, what's going to count is how long we live. Really? No, it's how we live. Not how many children, but how we bring up our children. Not how different we are in our spouse in our marriage how we handle the differences it's not how appreciative the boss is or isn't it's how I respond to his lack of appreciation letting him just get away with it or standing up in the way that I may need to stand up in order to be strong in this it's not the differences it's not how much less I have that's going to make the difference of my happiness is how I'm responding how I manage the differences and therefore says the Torah which God has given us there's another verse and this is in Deuteronomy 28 verse 47 because I haven't served God now this is a slightly different dimension of happiness because there it's referring specifically to happiness in serving God finishes off the same verse with the other dimension which we just mentioned which is enjoying what God's given us which translates as a good mind toiv, positive, leiv is an, always a metaphor for the mind it literally means heart but it's a metaphor for the thoughts with good thoughts, positive thoughts from the abundant good Says Rashi, Meraiv Kol means Be'oid Shehaya Loi Kol Tuv. While he had it good. While I have it good is when to enjoy it. But if I'm busy saying, wow, if I had more, then I'd really be able to get ahead. If I had more support, then I could finish this project on time. If I could, then my career would be, if you would be more supportive, then I'd, as long as it's outside and you're responsible and not me, I don't have to take responsibility, I don't have to take action, I don't have to change. You have to change. When you change, then I'll be appreciative of you. When you respect me, then I'll be able to respect you. Now, no one here has ever heard that before, but that's how sometimes, that's how we sometimes want to pass on my responsibility onto you, so that if you'll make me happy, then you will be such a happy spouse. If you would only make me happy, get better grades, I'd be so proud of you. I give all responsibility outside very dangerous these are the two most important 
versus what's already in our lives. The Arizal reveals the following. What is the word in Hebrew of being in the state of happiness, in the present tense, the present state of happiness? Simcha, in happiness. Right? What is the word in Hebrew which we use for thought? Machshava. Look at the letters, Machshava and Basimcha. You spell it out, they're exactly the same letters, different order, exactly the same. Says the Arizal, they're synonymous. The Basimcha, the present state of happiness, not in the future, when I get it, then I'll be it, when I can afford it, and when I get the raisin. Not in the future, right now, Basimcha is Machshava, what I'm thinking, what I choose to think. How do we sabotage our happiness? Number one, we make our happiness a moving target. Now what happens when you shoot an arrow at a moving target? You shoot the arrow, and when the arrow gets to where the target was, what happens to the target? Already moved forward. What happens if I say, you know, when when I'm able to pay my mortgage, I'm really going to be happy. When I finish grade school, when I get a grade, A, student, then I'm going to be really happy. Uh, when I get married, then I'll be happy. Uh, when I get divorced, then I'll be happy. When I, have <laughs> when, I have to, when I have children, then I'll be happy. When the children get out of the house, then I'll be happy. When, when I get a job, then I'll be happy. When I get out of this job, I'll be happy. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so real. I mean, uh, <laughs> no, I'm only joking. <laughs> As long as you and I make happiness outside of ourselves, and it's a moving time, because what happens when we get even close to making that money? What happens to our goal? There's a better model car to buy. Better house. Higher standard of living. Another wardrobe I could... Do you see how if we make happiness a moving target, I'm sabotaging my happiness because I won't arrive. The arrow gets... To the wrong place. So as long as it's outside of me, it's a target I can't even get to. So the only target that I can shoot at, and I have any control over, is inside of me. Well, let's look inside and see what's already good. And start getting high on that, so that whenever there's more, it's only going to be adding up. Adding up. Number two, sabotage of my happiness. Over-familiarity with the good. Like our daughter, failing chemistry. But look at all that. She hasn't got a fractured skull, she hasn't broken her leg, she hasn't got this and hasn't got that. All that's not happening in our lives that is negative, if it's not part of our inventory, then we're in danger of becoming over-familiar with what's already good in our lives. It's interesting that there are so many things in our lives that we have blessings for in order to help us get into happiness. And I'm going to talk about that right at the end. But which is the longest blessing in our prayer book? How far is the sun from this earth? 93 million. Thank you, ma'am. 93 million miles away. And where is the coldest point on this planet? North and South Pole. Where is the hottest point? At the equator. Why is it so hot at the equator and so cold at the North and South Pole? Because we're... For two reasons. We're closer to the sun at the equator, and at the equator there's less atmosphere for the sun rays to penetrate, and at the north and south pole there's more sun rays, more atmosphere to penetrate, and it's also further away. How far is it from the north pole 
to the equator. Any idea? Approximately. It's about 6,000 miles. 6,000... What is 6,000... By the way, how hot is it in the equator? Do you know? Anyone been to the equator? It's about 120 degrees. In the shade. How much is 6,000 miles a fraction of 93 million? Well, actually, while I was in the traffic, I (laughs) made a calculation on my watch. It's one in 15 thousandths. One in 15 thousandths. What would happen if the sun was a little bit bigger? All burn up. Potato chips. (laughs) What would happen if the sun was a little bit smaller? Will be ice cubes. What would happen if the sun was a little bit further away? Or a little bit closer? The longest blessing in our liturgy runs three pages in the article, Siddur. Thank you, Hashem, for the sunlight. Interesting. Talking about enjoying what's good in our lives. Did you ever get a bill for the sunlight? Did you ever get a bill for the air? Did you ever get a water bill? I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Says Rabbi Victor Miller, when is the best time for you and I to feel appreciation for God's blessing of Parnassa, of earning a living? Anyone here excited about paying bills? When we pay our bills, we pay the water bill, and you pay the telephone bill, and the mortgage, and the rent, and you write in the memo, says Rabbi Victor Miller, Thank you, God, I have the money to pay this bill. Now, I know some of you have borrowed the money to pay the bill, but the point is, training ourselves in happiness is about enjoying what's already good in our lives. And if I'm not keeping inventory of my happiness and I want my children to be happy, and I'm trying to sell them happiness in my home, and I ain't got it on my shelves, and they're not spending all the time in my store, I know they sleep there, but they spend a lot of time in other people's stores, and they'll be buying their form of happiness, self-immediate gratification, the media, buy me, get this jacket, this fashion, this diet, then you'll be happy. This hair cream, then you'll be happy. It's an apply in my case. Uh, they get the, <laughs> drive this, then you'll be happy. Smoke this, then you'll be happy. If I want to sell happiness to my children, I have to buy it first for myself and have as much stock as possible. And that means keeping inventory. So, number one, I make it a moving target. Number two, if I'm over-familiar with what's already good, the sun, the air, I could be in danger of not noticing when it's already there. It's already good. We'll talk about right at the end how the Torah gave us blessings to be a system for enjoying what's already good in our lives. Our health, our eyes, the eyes translate the sunlight into over 10 million different color distinctions. Isn't that amazing? 10 million, immediately processed, full color. And number three, sabotage is the power of the media. The power of the media is, is very powerful. Here, I think I've shared with you uh, in pr- previous presentations, uh, when I used to work in advertising with my father, advertising works, as you know, in the way that they employ therapists and psychologists to match up hang-ups within the nation 
to the product they want to sell. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. They'll take the hang-ups of every type of class of people. Financial status, social status, age. And we target group every type. Gender, age, social status, financial status. And we go through a long list of all the hang-ups. Loneliness, feeling unloved, ugly, overweight, fear. I don't have a partner for intimacy on a, on a constant basis. We go through every hang-up you can imagine. Then, take the product that you want to sell and match it off with the solution to the hang-up. So we have two lists here. A long list of the hang-ups and a long list of the solutions. And we take the product and we match it off with the solution. So that on screen, the viewer first sees that hang-up. That's, that's my hang-up. Whoa! What should I do to solve this? Oh! Pepsi! Oh! <laughs> now you might be laughing. How much was Michael Jackson paid for 183 seconds of his precious time to have Pepsi splashed across the screen? He wouldn't even hold it in his hand because he says it's not healthy. 183 seconds of his time. If they ask me, I've done it for half the price. $11 million! $11 million. And if you think it didn't work, how much do you think Sony signed him up for within two weeks for a 10-year contract for $2 billion? That's how powerful it sold. Advertising works. Don't fool yourself. How does it work? I'm going to take a quick census from you. I have not given you a break. If you're willing to listen out till the end, which is at quarter two, then I'll, I'll give you a couple of commercials. Okay. Okay. Here's a commercial. Speedy mufflers. Have you heard of speedy mufflers? This is a muffler. This is a muffler. You know, in, in England you call it an exhaust pipe. It happens to be sold in Canada. The commercial goes like this. You see a young man, probably in his early 20s, and he's driving a sports car, not such great condition. You know, a lot of 20-year-olds have invested all their life savings into their sports car. Somehow or other they've got a credit line and it's all in there. And the exhaust, the, the muffler is like making a terrible noise and you see him behind the wheel finally gets into the gas station and it conks out right there by the gas pump and the gas attendant opens up the door for him and ushers him into a nice warm room and he sits him on a plush leather swivel chair gives him a cigar and a coffee meanwhile they change the muffler they change the muffler and he goes back in the car you don't see him pay the bill of course and then you see him go behind the wheel and he's got a face of confidence of feeling special and you hear the engine. Well, actually, you don't hear the engine. You hear the beautiful sound of the car. If you've ever been in a Rolls Royce or a Lexus, you know what I'm talking about. And across the screen goes the following caption. If you want to be a somebody, buy your mufflers at Speedy. <laughs> I know it's slightly exaggerating, but that's, that's the caption. Now, if you go back to the script writing room where they produced this commercial, the script writing room conversation goes something like this. According to our statistics, you, Mr. Twenty-Year-Old, oh boy, are you such a nobody? You are such a nobody that since there was ever a somebody, there was nobody as a nobody as you. And we looked at your pain. Whoa, you have no esteem. You put all your money into your car because you really bought those ads which says the car is who you are. Boy, you are so shallow. 
and we looked at your pain and we decided, oh my gosh, that pain is terrible. <gasps> we got so hurt by your pain. I'm being obviously sarcastic about it, but we were so hurt by your pain. We decided to come up with a million dollar commercial just for you. We're going to solve your crisis. Buy your muffler at Speedy. And we'll call you a somebody. Ladies, do you really think that Canadian and American audiences with a decent education really are going to go out and now buy mufflers from Speedy because of this commercial? (laughs) I was going to say, hold off your verdict for the next commercial. (laughs) Next commercial is the famous Hunchback of Notre Dame. I know some of you have already seen it before. The nice Hunchback of Notre Dame is a British commercial selling British Telecom. British Telecom is the equivalent of AT&T in this country. And it's gone into Europe and they're very successful. Good quality telecommunications and accessories. And it goes like this. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is in the tower. He's in panic. There's a murderous mob coming out with shining torches of, of fire, screaming, Kill him! Kill him! In a few seconds, this guy is going to be ripped to pieces and burned to death. Oh, And it's going to be even more ugly than his face. <laughs> And this poor creature is in total panic. You look at his face and you cringe. And suddenly, amidst all the screaming and shouting, they're just about to get to the tower, you hear the noise of a telephone. That's how it goes in England. And he pulls the telephone receiver off the wall and says... And on the other end... On the other end of the phone goes a sweet, young, 16-year-old voice, something like... I love you. I love you. And he pulls the receiver away from his face and says, Shalom! Shalom! And the entire mob, the entire mob scream out in unison, She loves you! She loves you! And at the end of the commercial goes across the screen in a beautiful English accent, which I can do quite well, (laughs) goes something like this. If you want to be loved, buy British Telecom. (laughs) End of commercial. What? What? Is there anyone here who's offended by that commercial? Let's go to the script writing room and find out what they were talking about. According to our statistics, Mr. or Miss 18-year-old plus gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror, Oh, what happened to my face? Feels very ugly. Feels unloved. Doesn't expect that they're going to be popular, accepted, or have friends or a partner in whichever way in their lives. And we looked at your pain. We're broken. We decided to spend a few million dollars on a commercial just for you. <laughs> it goes like this. It's true. You're ugly. But, if you buy British Telecom will tell you you're loved. This is a British commercial. Do you really think that well-educated English viewers watching this commercial are going to go and buy British Telecom because they want to be loved? Good. One last commercial. First National Bank. And this is for the fathers. First National Bank... Look at the manipulation. Very deep, very deep. The manipulation goes like this. First National Bank produced a commercial 
father, his forties, beautiful pinstripe suit, looks really corporate, running through a plush green meadow in slow motion, arms open, <laughs> and, and two little children in their yont of clothes, like a five or six year old, a boy and a girl, so sweet and faint, and they're running to daddy with their arms open, and they're going in slow motion, and right in the middle of the plush green grass and the lovely cool wind, they embrace, and across the screen goes a following husky voice, I'm not sure I can do that one, and it goes something like this. Caring fathers, invest in First National Bank. What are they talking about? You go back to script writing room, and it goes something like this. According to our statistics, Mr. 40-year-old plus, doing very well in the corporate world, you're really climbing the ladder there. You've got a lot of people who are managed under you. You're fair, you pay them on time. They respect you. You drive a cool car. You're building a second home. Very impressive. But you're riddled with guilt because you don't give your children enough time. Your children never see you. We saw that feeling of guilt that you have. Oh, so painful. We decided to make a commercial just for you. Work a little harder so you can earn more commissions and a higher salary. Less time at home. And, and with the extra money, you invest it for your children's future because you're a caring father. Invest it for your children's future and we will call you a caring father. <laughs> Do you really think we buy these commercials? Do you think people buy Pepsi? Yeah? yeah? Ladies, forgive me, I'll just give you Calvin Klein quickly. <laughs> Mr. Klein walks into the advertising agency and says, I want my product in every store in America. Everyone buying my product. Certainly, Mr. Klein, what are you selling? Underwear! How are you going to get the whole nation excited about underwear? Right? Unless you're not selling underwear. See, if you're not selling underwear... <laughs> Rabbi, where did you... Listen, if you're in the traffic in Manhattan, you're at the red, red light and the bus goes by, what are you supposed to do, right? These are still photos, very powerful, still black and white photos, depicting two messages, which relates very deeply to many teenagers plus. And the two messages are, look at the photo and don't look. If you know someone who saw it, Check it out with them, and they'll tell you that's exactly what the photo is saying. Sex just took place. Sex just took place, or it's about to. That message is very clearly depicted in every single one of those photos. And that's what people are buying. And if you don't believe me, I gave this presentation a few months ago in Manhattan. There was a lady who came up to me afterwards and said, I wanted to know that I'm one of the attorneys on Calvin Klein's advertising budget and everything he says absolutely on the money. And believe me, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And do you think they're spending that because it doesn't work? The reason why it works, and this is the biggest, to my mind, sabotage of our happiness in this generation... The biggest, most powerful sabotage of our happiness in this generation is the media. Because they don't care. If you ask them, 
do you really believe that we're buying your product because of your commercial, because of Michael Jackson, because of a hunchback of Notre Dame? Do you think we're going to buy a uh, uh, bank with First National because of that? And the answer is, we don't care if you don't buy our product because of our commercial. Do you know why? Because you're going to buy it anyway. And you know you're going to buy it anyway. Because how many commercials has the average 10-year-old in this country seen before the age of 10? How many commercials has average kids seen before the age of 10 in, in America? 250,000 commercials. 250,000 confusions that give clarity about happiness, being cool, pleasure, true self-image, or confusion about happiness, relationships, long-term ingredients in relationships. What are we being sold? 250,000 confusions that associates my happiness, pleasure, meaning, career, success. Do you hear the deepest values that we crave are being played around with in the minds of children 250,000 times? They're not yet a consumer! Ten years old, not buying yet! We don't care if you don't buy it. And I'm telling you this from the inside. We don't care. I don't work in the commercials anymore. But we don't care if you don't buy our product because our commercial. Because you're going to anyway. Because the media, the consumer media is such that by the age of being a consumer, the mind has already been wired to associate pleasure, fun, SEX, relationships, being a somebody, having love, being loved, having happiness associating it with something outside, with a product, with a car, with a cigarette, with a vacation, with this image of being with other people. How many times I go on a shidduch and I figure out, how will we look in public? Is that what I'm thinking first and foremost? That's dangerous. Where's that coming from? Where's my clarity on love? Where's my clarity on pleasure coming from? The media have done a tremendous job of poisoning us because instead of turning on the ignition of your car and expecting the engine to come on, the windscreen, windscreen wipers come on, which means someone switched the wires. Instead of me looking for clarity about what happiness is really about, the commercials have switched the wires in my mind so that I have almost been brainwashed to associate happiness, pleasure, career, success, meaning the deepest cravings of the human psyche with things places, events outside of me. I remember when I was a kid, I went to Earl's Court. There's a very large, um, like, Java Centre here. But Earl's Court is in London. And we had the, the annual car show. And there, on top of every sports car, was a lady with a bikini. I was a young kid at the time, and I was always wondering, when a guy signed a cheque and bought the car on the spot, whether he... Get the lady with the bikini. Right. <laughs> <laughs> with the car. <laughs> What's she doing on top of the car? <laughs> the sun's not shining inside here. In fact, it was quite cold. <laughs> Go figure it out. The media have poisoned our minds, but it's worse than that. It's worse than what I've just described. Because after I buy that car, did anything change inside? Am I at least where I was before? I'm actually worse than before. Because I didn't get what I wanted. I got the car. But I didn't become somebody. 
I didn't become more in control of my life when I tried that diet. I didn't become more in control of my relationships when I smoked that cigarette. So the poison is deeper than just not getting what I want when I do buy the product. It's not becoming who I need to become to be happy in my life. I become less than because deep down I know I was a sucker. And when I realized, wait, I didn't get it. Oh, the new version! That's why! And guess what happens when you start driving the Volvo and you see the new model out? <laughs> Suddenly, you got very old, very fast. Hmm. Happiness is a moving target. We're over-familiar with it and the media have helped poison our concept of happiness. And to... Number five... Uh, no, sorry, number four of the sabotages. Very few of us took a graduate course in Suffering 101. <laughs> I'll explain this. Suffering 101 means if we didn't learn about how to respond to adversity, at least in a Torah context, and to find God in adversity, then I can still blame events and people in my life for me not getting ahead. It's my mom's fault. It's my father's fault. It's my uncle. It's my sister. She teased the hell out of me. Whatever we want to point fingers at, as long as it's them, who's responsible for moving ahead? Once you let go of me, once you give to me what I need, then I can. Yes, we need to heal, and we need to figure out, and we need to solve. But ultimately, if I give you responsibility for where I am, and I don't, I'm not willing to take action to move forward, who's controlling my destiny? The Gemara in Erechin, page 16a going on to 16b, has a very interesting discussion between three rabbis. They asked, uh, Which point can you say that suffering, adversity, challenges in life, still has purpose? So they have a very interesting discussion, which looks, looks on the surface as almost meaningless. You can't figure out what are they talking about. One rabbi says, you know what's called suffering, and, it's, and it has meaning? When you put a drink into the refrigerator, of course I'm embellishing it, Put the drink into the refrigerator to get it cool. You pull it, take it out, and you know it's still room temperature. Someone forgot to put the refrigerator on. Now you've got to put it all the way back in and turn it on. That's called suffering. The other rabbi says, why do you have to go so far? I'll tell you what's called suffering. You go to a store and you buy a garment. Some of you could probably relate to this. You buy a beautiful outfit. It's in fashion. Just the right label. And it's in season. Beautiful quality material. Sharpness tested. And best of all, on sale. And you put it on. Lomit Kabbalah life. Because you know what? It's not me. It's not my personality. There's nothing wrong with the material. It's in season. It's in fashion. It's best label. Nothing wrong whatsoever. But it's, it's not my personality. That's called suffering. Says the third rabbi. Wait a minute. Why do you have to go so far? Suffering is when you put your hand in your pocket and you want to take out a quarter and you took out a dime. Now you've got to put it all the way back in again. That's called suffering. So the obvious question you'll ask is, so what? What are we talking about over here? Rabbi, Rabbi Victor Miller has a very beautiful insight. He says the following, Every time something goes wrong, 
I put my key, you know, you've got a bunch of keys, you're looking for the keyhole in the apartment, and it's, it's dark Friday night, and you can't, you got to switch around it. Every time I get the wrong key, and it reminds me all the times I got the right key, and every time I go into the car, you know, once in a while it happens, someone bangs into you, a small amount of damage, you switch insurances, it's a pain, a big hassle, but if I get hit, it reminds me all the times I went in the car, nothing happened. All the times I get sick reminds me of all the times I was healthy. Ever went skiing in St. Moritz and came back with a broken arm or a broken leg and said, wow, when I can get out of these crutches, I'll be mobile and I'm going to enjoy life at a completely different level. Remember that feeling, right? A few days later. Says Rabbi Victor Miller, whenever adversity strikes, hidden in every adversity is a reminder of all the good I had before and still am enjoying. So it goes back to the same concept to enjoy what's already good in my life. Adversity deserves a, a presentation on its own, but I need to mo- move on slightly. The fifth and very frightening sabotage of our happiness is that when it comes to avoiding gratitude, you and I are geniuses. It's too much to get involved in two great legs right now, but even Adam, when he was told, Adam, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? What did he answer? Ha'isha! That woman! Who was he blaming? Which you gave me! Who was he blaming? He not nearly. She gave it to me. What did God say? I can't believe you're so ungrateful! The gift I gave you to be together with you, to support you, to cooperate and work together. You go and point fingers at her, the gift I gave you, and blame it on her, and you're not taking responsibility for eating the fruit yourself? And when he asked Chava, she went and pushed it onto the snake. Why didn't God ask the snake? Because he didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) (laughs) That was only a joke. That wasn't part of the... Doesn't say that inside. Kaifatai, <laughs> being ungrateful, is a way of me avoiding responsibility for my personal happiness. I will never forget in England on the top of the pops. Is that what it's called here? You have it? The top 10? About 20 years ago, maybe slightly more, there was a song that got to the top of the pops. I'm going to sing it for you, but I'll tell you the lyrics. It was called From Mum No Charge. And it was about a kid who came down to breakfast one morning and left a bill on the table for mum for babysitting and removing the garbage, $1.50. And he went to school. Now, your mum, how would you respond to this bill? <laughs> Outrage! I can't believe I've brought up such a creature! He's a monster! He's charging me for that! Well, she didn't respond like that. The next morning, on the table, was a slightly larger piece of paper and it went like this. From mum, for nine months in my womb, no charge. For three hours of unbearable hard labor, no charge. Three months, sleepless nights, no charge. 9,000 diapers before you could take care of yourself. Lousy wages, lousy conditions, no charge. 18,000 meals, 
before you could boil an egg. No charge. No, it was a beautiful song. I don't remember the, the, the song. Beautiful, but people were crying their faces off. I mean, oh my gosh, Mom, I was so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't appreciate you. Hakadosh Baruch Hu gives us our eyes, our teeth, our tongues, our hands. This is not a guilt trip. This is not a guilt trip. This is about taking inventory. The happiness is already there. The treasure is already there between our eyes. Our brains, our minds. We are already alive. There are already people in our life that care about us. There are people out there that the more value we create and happiness we create in our lives, do you think we become more valuable to others? Absolutely. Says the Mishnah in Perki Avais, the same Mishnah, Perik Dalad Mishnah 1. Who is the one who gets the most appreciation? Who is the one who gets the most honor, the most respect? Who is the one who gets the most appreciation, the most respect? is the one who gives the most respect. Who is the one who gets the most love? The one who gives the most love? Not always. Not always. Don't give up. You've always got the grandchildren to do it through. To end up on the following. And I didn't give enough attention to this because we have to end in two minutes. But... The Torah has provided for you and I an amazing system. And I want to offer an invitation and challenge that we have already in our hands the ability to create happiness on a more consistent basis in our lives, starting any minute of our lives that we make that choice to start. The system is that Hashem gave us one blessing in the Torah, and that was Birkat Amazon. Some argue Birkat Amazon is also from the Torah, but basically, blessing after bread is the only blessing mandated by the Torah. The rabbis gave us hundreds, and there are dozens, but it adds up to a hundred a day. We make a blessing for our eyes, we thank God for water, I know it's always in association with a specific ritual, but we're being grateful for water in our lives. We thank Hashem for the sun, we have to thank Hashem for our backs, we thank Hashem for our clothes, we thank Hashem for being able to walk in the streets, we thank Hashem for our shoes, Shasali Kholsarki, provide us with all our needs. We make a blessing on food, on drink, on the rainbow, on the moon. We make a blessing on a new garment. The rabbi saw that you and I were losing grip of happiness through appreciation of Hashem's blessings in our life. So they invented blessings to get us back into what was originally Hashem's intent. I don't just want you to thank me for the bread. If you're going to thank me for being satiated, surely you're going to thank me for before being satiated. When you and I walk out this room today, we can make a commitment to blessings. Even if we don't yet know the blessings perfectly, but at least say thank you, Hashem, for the orange juice until I learn how to read the words properly. And use the blessings to create a moment in time of appreciating the orange juice, the coffee, the food, the clothes, paying the bills. And through that, train ourselves to increase the happiness in our lives. Thank you for your time.